You know, too many times we do uh, gloss over passages like Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and we think, well, we've, we've heard that before, we've read that before, and, uh, you know, we don't spend a lot of time focusing on each one of them. So this, this series where we spend some time really unpacking each and every one of those fruits of the Spirit is really, really important. But, you know, even with the 10-week sermon series, I think still we really only have scratched the surface. You know, we, uh, we also need to be reminded that verse 22 starts with the word but. And that means there's something that came before. It's, there's something that these verses are responding to or reacting to. And, uh, you know, if you look at the preceding verses, that would be correct. In verses 19 through 21, you have listed for us the, the acts of the flesh that are in direct contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. You know, several weeks ago, a month or so ago, I had the opportunity to lead the Ladies' Ecumenical Bible Study, and Galatians 5 was my, was my chapter. And I have to admit, we spent so much time on the acts of the flesh, which, by the way, is very awkward with a ladies' Bible study, especially when your Aunt Rosella is in the group. Well, we hardly had time to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We spent so much time. And, you know, we gloss over those acts of the flesh, too. It's important that we understand them as well. But that's all the more reason why I'm glad for this sermon series, so we can just focus on the fruit now. Um, so what are these common themes? Well, I, I think one of them is, first, and I believe this has been emphasized either directly or indirectly every week so far, that we possess none of the fruit ourselves. It's all of God. It's all his doing. It all originated with him. It all comes from him. Paul quotes in, uh, in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that certainly applies to each and every one of us. It is only through the goodness and the graciousness and the love of God that we have these fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's, it's just God's goodness that, that brings that out. But enough about God's goodness right now. I want to talk about these common themes first. You know, another common theme. Uh, in order to get fruit, it has to be cultivated, doesn't it? It has to be cultivated. Think about your garden if you have one. Or think about the flower beds out in front of the church. You know, Terry Lewis and her crew do a, a fantastic job of keeping them just looking beautiful. But she will tell you that the bad is always trying to take over. And so it is when we're involved in trying to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives. The bad is always trying to crowd out the good. It's always trying to destroy or cheapen or dilute or overshadow or overwhelm the good. And we really have to make a deliberate effort to cultivate the good, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, I used the word cultivate in the recent blog post about uh, Kingdom Rock Vacation Bible School. And that's what we try to do each and every year. We attempt to cultivate the Word of God, the message of Jesus, in the hearts and the minds of the children who attend. It's really a lot like the parable of the sower broadcasting seed. You know, some of that seed fall, falls on the pathway, on that hard pathway. It can't penetrate. 
Some of it falls into shallow soil or gets crowded out by the thistles. Some gets picked up by the birds. But some of that seed falls on good soil, on fertile ground, and it takes root and it begins to grow. And then the third common theme that I've picked up from uh, this sermon series so far is that, that fruit can't be forced. It has to be allowed to grow. Now, now check out these pictures of cubic watermelon. Now, that's just weird, isn't it? But it would be great to pack them, you know, to ship them or to have to transport them. And you don't have to worry about it rolling off the picnic table. But imagine eating a slice of square watermelon just for a minute. You know, think about that. It's, it's just not right, I don't think, you know. Uh, and they were forced to grow this way. They were put in containers and they were compressed you know, they could only grow so far in each direction. But there's just something unnatural about that, I think. You also, you're not going to find fruit out of season, right? And to quote Jesus, you're not going to find grapes on thorn bushes or figs on thistles. Fruit can't be forced. It just has to be allowed to grow and mature. Well, I have a fourth common theme, but I'm going to save that for a little bit later. So let's begin our examination of goodness. Now, I have to tell you that preparing this sermon is a lot like this duffel bag that I've been carrying around in my car since Vacation Bible School ended. And this is a, a, a duffel bag filled with a parachute, borrowed it from Royersford Elementary School, and I've got to get it back there. But, you know, as I thought about goodness and preparing a sermon on goodness, I began to do a little bit of research and reading, you know, and you start to, to pull and tug and, you know, oh, well, that's interesting. And, well, look how that's connected to this. And, you know, I found lots of information. It was unbelievable how much information I found. And some of it was difficult to find and to unpack. But it was just like this. So, you know, the more you pack or the more you unpack, the more you find, the more you realize that there is just so much out there. And then you think about having to take all of that and now I've got to fit it back into a two-hour sermon. No, it won't be quite that long. But that's the challenge. And again, you know, the point is, we're still, even with this sermon series where we're concentrating on each fruit of the Spirit, we're still only just scratching the surface. So what is goodness? Well, if we can look, we can look at the dictionary definition, and it says the state or quality of being good. But if we want a godly perspective, where do we have to go? We have to go to God's Word. We have to go to the Scriptures. And, you know, if you just look at the word goodness, there are basically two basic words in Hebrew, which is the Old Testament, and two basic words in Greek, which is the New Testament. So I'm thinking, well, okay, goodness, that's not too bad. Total of four words. The word goodness appears about 559 times in the Old Testament. It only appears 21 times in the New Testament. Well, that's interesting. So, you know, I'm unpacking this. I'm learning about it. But it's not just goodness that we have to look at. We have to look at the word good. It's necessary that we unpack that as well. 
And you'll find 20 versions of the word good in Hebrew and 34 in Greek. And that's when the parachute came out of the bag. I thought, there is no way I'm going to be able to do this justice. So really, I have to to pick the most important points. Now, before we go any further, I do want to also make sure that we understand one concept. And this is as far as the world is concerned. As far as the world is concerned, the concept of good is a relative term. It's a relative term. What is good for one person might not be good for another person. There's a certain amount of subjectivity that goes into what is good and what is not good. Matt and I were down on Long Beach Island this past week, and we were looking for a place to have dinner, and Matt pulled out his iPhone, and he dials up Yelp. And, you know, you're familiar with those websites, right? They have like a rating scale, five stars for restaurants and hotels and so on. And, uh, you know, how many stars does it have? And there's a scale. And he said, well, we're not going to this restaurant because it only has two and a half stars. Well, we later found out from, from Tim and Jen, that's their favorite restaurant. So you can't always depend on people's opinions. And they sometimes are just their opinions. So the what's good and what's not good. Wouldn't it be interesting, though, if on a website they just said, this restaurant is good and this one is not good, and that was it. You know, you didn't have to worry about how many stars it had. Have you heard of the website WikiHow? Have you heard of it? You, know, you, you call that up, and you can find out how to do anything. Put in an electrical outlet, unclog a drain, how to write uh, a doctoral thesis, you know, whatever. Well, you can also find out how to be a good person on WikiHow. There are 28 steps, 28 steps how to be a good person. And if you, I don't know if you can see it or not, at the very bottom is step number one. Identify what it is that being a good person means to you personally. I read that and I thought, That doesn't sound very good to me because that's where that subjectivity now is coming in. And, you know, I read all 28 steps, and there's some good advice. There's some good information, solid advice. But God wasn't mentioned one single time, not one single time. So that's the world's perspective. As Christians, we have to keep in mind one thing, that if God has anything to do with it, it's good. If God says it's good, it's good, right? The Scriptures also reveal the ultimate and absolute definition of goodness, and there are three aspects of godly goodness. First, the thing or the person is fulfilling their intended purpose. It's good. All right? If it's fulfilling its intended purpose or the person is fulfilling their intended role or mission or calling, that's good. Secondly, morality is involved. Now, as we've just seen with WikiHow, there's all kinds of morality. This is godly morality. And the third aspect is of godly goodness that some type of benefit is involved. It either benefits a person or a group of people, whatever. And that brings us to the very first use of the word good in the Bible. It's in Genesis. You're familiar with it. First chapter, 
fourth verse. Remember what God created on the first day? Created light. And he looked at light and he said that it was good. It was good. And if you remember, as he creates each component and each part of creation, at the end of the day, what does he say? And it was good. And it was good. And then at the end of the sixth day, after he's created mankind, do you remember what he says? Yeah, exactly. It was very good. Very good. You know, we get the impression right from the very beginning that mankind has been set apart, has been set aside, chosen, something special. And again, we're reminded that it all comes from God. It all originates from God. Now, um, you know, could it have been evil? Well, that's really not the aspect of good that we're looking at here. At this point, what God is saying when he sees that it is good is that each part of his creation is fulfilling and it's ready to fulfill its intended purpose. To me, that's perfection, right? And his creation initially was indeed perfect. And that's certainly one of the basic ideas of the fruit of the Spirit also. The Spirit of God wants to manifest itself in each one of us this way. It wants us to fulfill our purpose, our purpose in life, to fulfill the expectations that God has for us, to fulfill the role and the the will that he has for each of us in our individual lives. Well, there's another use of the word good, some 50 chapters later in Genesis, and this is where Joseph is talking to his brothers. Remember? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, his good purpose in every situation, God's is, is ultimately to save lives, isn't it? It was here and it still is today. Joseph suffered some pretty hurtful things. You know, it's, it's amazing what he, he had to go through, what he went through. But God took the evil purposes of his brothers and worked it for good, again, to save many people. It reminds me of my favorite uh, chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, and this is verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You notice this verse doesn't say a few things. For some things, it says all things. There's also a choice. If we look at Deuteronomy 30.15, we see the choice that God offers. Life and prosperity versus death and destruction. The Hebrew word for prosperity here is tav, like mazel tav, all right? Tav is good. It is also prosperity. Um, God calls us to choose his way, and if we do, it will be of great benefit to us, the fullest part of his blessings. You know, I I learned a lot in preparing for this sermon, saw things uh, differently, things that I had really never noticed before, and one of them was in the 23rd Psalm. There's the word goodness, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't think I ever really thought about that before, that goodness and mercy follows us. What does that really mean? Are we guaranteed God's love 
and mercy and goodness? Well, yes. But you have to read the whole psalm to really think about it. And think about what else is in Psalm 23. You see, we get the fullest extent of God's blessing if we allow him to shepherd us, to lead us, to guide us, to feed us, to anoint us, to comfort us. There are a lot of people today, and sometimes we have to count ourselves in that number who don't understand this. We think that we should be blessed by God just because he's God and we're us. And we neglect the fact that we need to be an active part, a true part of his flock. God's fullest blessing, his fullest blessing is conditional. It's conditional on our following him, on obeying him. Now, there also seems to be a differentiation between goodness and righteousness. Think about that for a minute. How would you explain the difference between goodness and righteousness? Now, one important part of righteousness, that it involves following the law, following the law to the letter. That's righteousness. He's a righteous person. He follows the law, obeying the commandments. But goodness is a little different. Goodness goes beyond fulfilling the minimum. It's doing more than you're required to do. Goodness is following the example of Jesus Christ. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? And Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And he says this repeatedly, five or six times, like you have heard it it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you. What was he doing? He was taking the law to a new level. He was taking the law to a new and different plane. He He was raising the bar. And in essence, what he was really doing was making it impossible for us as humans to follow it. We can't humanly adhere to 100% the standard that Jesus sets. Oh, we can try. But because it's so lofty, because it's so high, it's impossible to do. We can't do it on our own power. We can't be righteous on our own effort. We have to depend on him. You know, in... um, In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it ends with, and against such there is no law. It names all the fruit of the Spirit, and then it says, against such there is no law. And scholars disagree a little bit about what that means. Um, You know, whether it it means there is no law against those things, that the fruit of the Spirit can't be governed by the law. There are some who say it means There's no law that can produce the fruit of the Spirit. You will be kind. (laughs) There's no law in the books that says that. Maybe some of the other externals that revolve around being kind. You will be loving. You will be good. You can't legislate the fruit of the Spirit. And in essence, if we all lived by the fruit of the Spirit, we wouldn't need the law, would we? If we all lived above and beyond what the law expects by carrying out the fruit of the Spirit, we wouldn't need the law. And that's really, I think, what that phrase means. 
And then there's this interesting interchange recorded for us in Luke 18 between Jesus and the rich young ruler. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. I wonder if the rich young ruler realized that he was talking to God when Jesus said these things. You know, as with most conversations with Jesus, the person who's on the receiving end gets more than they bargained for. (laughs) I think this guy didn't realize it, but he bit off a whole lot more than he wanted to chew. You know, you can just imagine this ruler, this important person coming up to Jesus, attempting to flatter the teacher. You know, flattery had served this ruler well. He had used it to his advantage many times. In fact, he was quite happy to get a healthy dose of flattery himself from time to time. But he gets shut down. He gets completely shut down when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Imagine the look on the young ruler's face when he got that reaction from Jesus. You know, we can talk about good people and good things in human terms and standards all day, but when it really comes down to it, it is only God Only God, as Jesus was telling this young ruler who sets the ultimate standard, the expectations for goodness. Well, after the bubble bursting uh, for this rich young ruler, Jesus goes on to answer. And, you know, the spirits of this ruler must have been buoyed a little bit because Jesus answers just the way he wanted him to answer. He had to be loving it when he was hearing it. This was his reply. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler says, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. He's got the thumbs under the suspenders. He's really very proud of that. Very happy about it. And it was impressive. But it was all righteousness, wasn't it? It wasn't necessarily goodness. He hadn't gone above and beyond the law. And so Jesus knows this and responds in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You know the rest of the story, right? The young ruler hung his head, and went away sadly. Why? Because he had many possessions. Those possessions weren't evil in an oven by themselves, but they had a hold on him, or maybe he's the one that had the hold on those possessions. And those possessions were keeping him from seeing eternity, from seeing the kingdom of heaven. They had a grasp on him. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus saying this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You notice that it doesn't uh, just say not to practice your righteousness before men. and It doesn't stop there. It says, don't practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Our motivation is really important. What we have in our heart is really critical. Our heart has to be in the right place. 
And that brings me to that last commonality that I, I really see with all of the fruit. And this especially relates to goodness, but it does relate to all of them. And this common aspect is we can't know a fruit of the Spirit unless we first taste it. We can't know a fruit of the Spirit unless we first taste it. Okay, now here's a normal watermelon. How would you describe the taste of watermelon to someone who has never tasted it before? How would you describe it so well that when they take the first bite that they have ever had of watermelon, that there'd be no surprise? They would know exactly what it was going to taste like. Watermelon tastes like watermelon, right? Peaches taste like peaches. Strawberries taste like strawberries. They're all unique. They're all different. You have to taste it. You have to experience it. And I believe that the same holds true for the fruit of the Spirit. No one really knows what true goodness is unless they've had a taste of it. We can research and we can read and we can study all about it. But unless we've experienced it firsthand, we really don't know what it is. We truly don't know. You know, who gave you your first taste of God's goodness? You know, if you're like me, your life is filled with many people who have shared the goodness that they first received from God, and then they point you back to God, giving God credit where credit is due for everything that is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. I'd like to share uh, some writing by Sarah Young. Now, this is from a book uh, of hers called Dear Jesus. And if you're familiar with Sarah Young, you know that she takes the Scripture and she puts it into a conversational form almost, coming directly from Jesus. And it's all based on Scripture. They aren't Jesus' words, but it's all based on Scripture. First is from the, from the point of view of Jesus, and then she replies back, and then there's another reply from Jesus. Taste and see that I am good. The more intimately you experience me, the more convinced you become of my goodness. And then she writes, Dear Jesus, I have been taught since early childhood that you are good. However, that teaching did not change me significantly. Eventually, I became a Christian, and I tasted your goodness briefly, yet I still did not know you very deeply. As a result, when things went badly in my life, I tended to resent your ways with me. Only when I began investing time and seeking your face did I start to know you intimately. Now that I have tasted your goodness, I want to experience more and more of you. And then this again is from the perspective of Jesus. Beloved, your desire to know me more fully is a delight to my heart. Actually, I have been pursuing you for quite some time. Long before you became a believer, I was working to reveal myself to you. I placed experiences in your life that exposed your deep need to know me. I brought people in whom you could see the light of my presence. Even after you trusted me as Savior, I continued to pursue your heart, which was divided between me and worldly goals. Finally, 
You began seeking me with your whole heart, and I rejoiced. Your wholeheartedness has opened the way for genuine intimacy between us. You have tasted my goodness, and you want more. I have responded to this desire in several ways. I have allowed suffering in your life so that you could learn to trust me more. Also, I have blessed you with intimate experiences of my presence to boost your confidence in my perfection. My goal is for you to become so convinced of my goodness that nothing can shake your trust in me. Then your soul will be deeply satisfied as with the richest of foods. One of the verses that she based that on is Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And that is why, Christian friends, the fruit of the Spirit are so important and why it's so important that we allow them to grow and mature and flourish in our lives. And we always have to remember that it's not us. It's God working in us and through us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray.